Good morning again, Redeemer. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 21. Psalm 21. I've been meditating on this psalm this week. Uh, Two dominant themes surface from it. And so I've entitled our our time in God's Word, uh, A King, Thanks and Trust the King. And so that's going to be the frame that we're going to be looking at this morning. You'll see that this psalm is uh, a psalm of David. You'll also see a reference to the king in the psalm. You'll also see this use of we, and we think we might even be the people of Israel. And so this psalm is somehow tied to King David, and these are his words and their words, his prayers and their prayers. So let's read God's word together. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asks life of you when you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence, for the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High he shall never be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out all those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. For you will destroy their descendants from the earth, and their offspring from the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. And we will sing and praise your power. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we come again and we do uh, come with bended hearts. And we do come, Lord, with bended hearts asking for your blessing. Your word is powerful and effective to convert sinners and to call your people to repentance and deeper hope and trust and faith. And Father, you are pleased, Lord, to use uh, mouthpieces for the Most High God. You raised up prophets and apostles. And Lord, these men were broken. And yet you were pleased, Lord, to speak through them, to build up your people and to remind them, Lord, of your character, of your likeness, of your truth. And so, Father, I pray that that would be true this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would forgive me my sins, and I pray that you will build up your people. We are yours, and you are ours. May we learn to delight in you more. Do this through your word, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. So every year, I try to pay attention to uh, what has become a beautiful tradition in the NFL. It's around Christmas time, and uh, the offensive linemen will receive lavish gifts 
from quarterbacks and running backs. Now, just to understand who the offensive linemen are on the field, in case you're not familiar with football, they wear the numbers between 50 and 79. They never win the MVP. They never catch a touchdown unless it's tipped or fumbled. They never catch a pass unless it hits someone else's hand. They never run the ball. They never get an interception. Play after play after play, they stand up. They bend down, they block, they stand up, bend down, and block, and that's all they do. They block the opposing team from sacking their quarterback, and they block to open holes for their running backs. And if you ever listen to a quarterback in a post-game interview who throws for 300 yards and five touchdowns with zero sacks, the first group of people he praises is the offensive line. If you hear about a running back who runs for 200 yards and three touchdowns, none for loss, the first thing he praises in the post-game interview is the big fellas. The big fellas did their job because their uniforms are dirty. My uniform is clean because they got into the trenches. I was able to do what I did. And they do more than give lip service to the offensive line. Around Christmas time, middle of the football season, right before the playoff run, they buy lavish gifts. Mac Jones gave his entire offensive line Bitcoin last year. Carson Wentz gave his entire offensive line Elmer T. Lee and Blanton's, if you're into bourbon, and Yeti Coolers. Dak Prescott gave his entire offensive line exclusive non-release Jordans and segues. Kyler Murray, the quarterback for the Arizona Cardinals, gave his entire offensive line custom golf clubs and golf bags. In years past, Tom Brady gave his entire offensive line Audi Q7s. Those are $70,000 cars. Carson Palmer had his entire offensive line delivered hot tubs to their homes. Tony Romo gave the entire offensive line custom Louis Vuitton bags. Eddie George gave his entire offensive line four-wheelers. Adrian Peterson gave his entire offensive line snowmobiles. Aaron Rodgers gave his entire offensive line Polaris ATVs. Joe Montana and Lamar Jackson gave their entire offensive line presidential Rolex watches. I love it. We can learn a lot from the NFL, even if you hate football. And here is the lesson we can learn. They're teaching us the importance of remembering the unsung hero and celebrating the people who don't get the credit. They show us the beauty of gratitude, stopping mid-season and honoring the offensive line for their hard work, trusting that the ones who got them that far will step it up and bring them home. Psalm 21 is a psalm of gratitude and trust. David the king has led a charge in battle 
And David could be tempted to take credit, but he doesn't. He stops and he praises the goodness of his God. He and the people, they stop and they pause and give praise for the past and they express deep trust for the future. A king and a people thank and trust the king. Now, gratitude and trust are major aspects of the Christian life. If you read Romans, one of the first things Paul says in Romans 1, 8, first, I thank God through Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin became obedient from the heart. Romans 7, 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 16, 4, I give thanks to those who risked their necks for my life, but also all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Romans is about gratitude. Paul also talks about the importance of trust in the book of Romans. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And it's not just salvation in the past that Paul is talking about. When you get to Romans 8, he's actually looking into the future. He says, what can we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I am sure in the future that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is future trust. These two things are bound together in Luke 17. Ten lepers are healed by Jesus, and one Samaritan returns and gives thanks. And Jesus says, were not ten lepers cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give thanks to God except this foreigner? And he said to them, rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. It's two sides of the same coin, that the one who gives thanks is the one who truly trusts. The one who truly trusts will be the ones who truly give thanks. Thanksgiving and trust go hand in hand. And I don't know about, I don't know about you, but can't we all grow in gratitude to the Lord and trust in the Lord? Can it ever be said that her gratitude is too great. Can it ever be said that his trust in God is too much? Those would be the highest compliments unto our king. And that's what this psalm is about. This psalm helps us to grow, grow in gratitude, grow in thanks unto the Lord. And it helps us trust him for the future, no matter what might come. So I got two points today, not three, all right? Two, and here's the first one. How do we grow in gratitude? Here's the answer. Looking at God's past faithfulness makes us more grateful. Verses one through six. Now, let's go. So, the. The, the arrangement of the psalms are mysterious. We don't know who arranged them. We do know that there are multiple authors, David, Moses, sons of Korah. Some are unnamed. We also know that they're not arranged chronologically. They're not arranged thematically. Like we, we, We're still trying to get our minds around the 
order to this mystery that we call the Psalms. But there are instances in the Psalms where the order is known, and we can see continuity between two Psalms, and we have it in our passages this morning. You see, Psalm 21 is one of them. Psalm 21 not only follows Psalm 20 chronologically, but it follows it thematically, and I want to make a case to you situationally. In other words, to truly understand what's going on in Psalm 21, you have to look at Psalm 20. You have to look at them side by side. Now, what's going on in Psalm 20? There's a day of trouble. Look at Psalm 20. Just kind of look right above the chapter you're in. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help May he give you support. May he grant your heart's desire, right? And so what's going on in that psalm is we think that this is a, a, Psalm 20 is a prayer before a battle. Now, how do we know a battle is coming? Look at verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of our Lord. And so this is right before a battle, and David and, and, and Israel, they're probably praying for protection, for safety, for salvation, for deep in trust, for victory, for hope, for life. And then what you get in Psalm 21, I want to make the case to you, is proof that God answered those prayers. Now notice the continuity. Look at how Psalm 20 ends. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Look how Psalm 21 begins. O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices. That's a scene. You got to read those together. Look at verse 4 of chapter 20. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Now, look down at 21-1. 21 two. you have given him his heart's desire. You see that? And you have not withheld the request of his lips. Look at 20 verse 6. May you answer from heaven with your saving might of your right hand. Now look at verse chapter 21 verse 8. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out all those who hate you that these psalms are meant to be read together. They prayed for safety. They prayed for answered prayers. They prayed for victory. And Psalm 21 is them saying, Lord, you were faithful. After the battle, what we asked you for, you did it. The people of God are teaching us a valuable lesson That gratitude springs up when we not only take the time to recall God's general goodness, but those specific prayers prayed and specific prayers answered. They stopped after battle, and this was not a Luke 17 where they got a blessing and went on their way and forgot to come back and bow the knee before Jesus. They actually got the blessing of victory, and they returned to their God and fell on their faces, and they said, thank you. We praise you. We bless you. We glorify you. That was you who did it. It was not us. It was your strength, not our might. It was your wisdom, not our power. They 
trusted in chariots. We trusted in you, and you came through for us, and we bless you and praise you. And so as we read the Bible, we come across these, praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. Let us be grateful, Hebrews chapter 12, praise his glory, Ephesians 1, blessing and glory and thanksgiving be to our God forever and ever, Revelation 7. It's, the Bible is full of commands, be thankful, be thankful, be thankful, praise him, praise him, glorify him. Now, if a human person walked around like that, praise me, bless me. Thank me, glorify me, you will look at them like they have lost their minds. But why can God do it? Why can he say it in the Psalms? Why can he guarantee us in the book of Revelation that we're going to spend forever and ever and ever and ever and ever thanking him? Why? Because of this. Whenever God commands praise, Always because he's done 500,000 things for you. Always. And so when you read our call to worship this morning, the refrain there was give thanks to the Lord. Let them thank the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Let them thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. And if you just see the commands and you don't see why God is commanding thanksgiving, then you miss this beautiful truth. And here is this. God never commands us to give thanks without him already doing a hundred million things that are worthy of his praise. And so in that psalm that Jermaine read, he says, some of them wondered and did not have a home and were landless. And they cried to God and he rescued them. And some of them, because of their sinfulness, they rebelled against the Lord and they were locked in a dungeon. And then they cried out to the Lord and he rescued them. Give thanks to him for that. That what the Psalms, what the Bible, what it's doing for us, Christian, it's saying that the root of gratitude is seeing God's consistent and consecutive faithfulness to you over and over and over and over and over again. And so abounding in gratitude begins by pausing and pondering his past goodness to you. The old saints used to say, if God don't ever do nothing else for me, he's been good to me, and I'm going to praise him. What they're saying is his track record back there is good, and he is faithful. And maybe you're here this morning, and you struggle to be thankful because life is tough, because you're scared of a job or a cancer diagnosis or a recession, or inflation. And here's the good news, that you can begin practicing gratitude right now by praying this psalm Christologically. Now, what, whoa, whoa, what do, what do you mean by that, Pastor L? Here's what I mean. These psalms are here for us to sing and for us to pray. And we pray them through the lens of Jesus. And here's what I mean. The people of Israel were blessed because of King David. 
But King David asks for life. And did you notice what it says in verse 4? It says that you have given him length of days forever and ever. David ain't alive. You've given him this crown. Well, when David died, the crown went to someone else. And so we have to insert Jesus here. Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the one who ultimately rejoices in the strength of the Lord. No request is withheld from Jesus' mouth. Jesus has been given the length of days forever. Upon Jesus has been given the victor's crown. He trusted the Lord with his heart and soul and might and strength and and he will not be moved. And Christ has won the victory over the tyranny of hell, the force of Satan, the work of the powers of darkness, one man against the whole host of hell. And in laying down his life for his people, he is triumphed over darkness. He has satisfied the righteous requirement of the law. He has absorbed the wrath of God. And we, like Israel, we benefit from his work in the past because he lives forever so will you, and you can praise him for that. Because Christ atoned for your sins, you have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and you can praise him for that. Because you trust in Jesus, you've been sealed until the day of Christ Jesus, and that happened back in the past, and you can praise him for that. And you may not have enough for your down payment for a house, but God has given you the down payment of the Holy Spirit. He has sealed you. You are his. You will make it home. It's happened in the past. Because of Jesus, you have access to his throne. He is intimately connected to you and your prayers. Therefore, one of the most healthiest things that we can do, Redeemer, is to write in our Bibles. I lost one of my favorite Bibles, y'all. And I look for it, and I look for it, and I look for it. And I know, like, this is it's just paper. And so I could go get a Bible out there right now because we leave them in here, right? I, Bibles, are the, they're printed everywhere. It's not about the paper. You know what I'm missing from that old Bible? Everywhere God met me. When I prayed for stuff, and he answered. When we were going through stuff, and he showed up. When our souls were downcast, and he was faithful, that's what I'm missing. I'm missing tracing his faithfulness to me in the past, and that's why it's not just a Bible. It's a Bible with his hand print on my life. That's why journaling is so powerful. That's why keeping a notebook is so powerful. That's why making a note on your phone about things you pray for is so powerful. That's why having a prayer list in our bulletin is so powerful because you can see God sustaining the Abrahams. You can see God drawing near to those who have children who are trying to figure out how to be parents. You can see God heal people because we're prone to forget. One of the ways to grow in gratitude is to look at his past faithfulness. But how do we grow in trust? That's the second point, and it's our last point. 
How do we grow in trust? Looking at God's past faithfulness and resting in his steadfast love increases our trust for his future goodness. So here's what I'm not doing. I know that's a really long point. Y'all just got to remember these few words. How do we grow in trust? The past matters, but something else is mixed into it. It's his hesed, his steadfast love. And what that will do is will make you trust him. When these two things collide together, then whatever happens in the future, you can be anchored. And that's in verses 7 through 13. Now look at the psalm with me. Did you notice that the psalm takes a turn? That I think verses 1 through 7, or specifically 1 through 6, look back. That he acts of life and you gave it. You met, you meet him with rich blessings. You have given him, verse 2. And then there's, there, there's, a, there's a switch. The vantage point now goes to the future. Look at it. Look at verse 8. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven. You will swallow them up in your wrath. Your fire will consume them. That these verses are written differently and the psalmist is looking in the future. But the psalm takes another turn. We're introduced to another character in the psalm. Before this, the the characters are the king and the Lord and the people. That triad, the king, the Lord, the people. The king, the Lord, the people. But then at the end of this psalm, verse 8 on, a new character comes on the scene in the psalm. You know who it is? Enemies. You see that? Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out all those who hate you. So those who hate you are your enemies. You will make them. Who's of them? Your enemies. The Lord will swallow them up. Who's of them? Your enemies. In other words, what's happening in this psalm is, is David is looking forward. Now, we got to kind of do something here with that word enemy. Eugene Peterson says, uh, and when he, he, he has a, a great book on the Psalms as tools for prayer. He says, many people don't pray the Psalms or at least don't pray them very long. The Psalms are full of unsettling enemy talk. God is the primary subject of the Psalms, but enemies are an established second place. When we take the Psalms as our guide, we find that people who pray have a lot of enemies, and they spend a lot of time praying about their enemies. Now, When I saw that, man, it just kind of, boom. Why do all the Psalms be talking about these enemies? Here's a test case. We're going to do a little little, little homework right here for you. Not homework. We're going to do it right now. An in-class lesson. Look at Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. So that's obviously the enemy in in that psalm. Psalm 21, enemies come up over and over and over again. We'll turn over to Psalm 22. This is the the, the famous 
psalm that we apply to Jesus when Jesus was on the cross. And listen to what Psalm 22 says. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. This is a messianic psalm. These things happened to Jesus as he was on the cross. That is how he saw what was happening. They were fulfilling Psalm 22. Now, go to Psalm 23. Y'all know that psalm. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my who? All right. We just looked at four Psalms in succession, 20, 21, 22, and 23. Eugene Peterson is right. If we're going to be serious about praying the Psalms, you had better be serious about the enemies that the Psalms introduce you to. This is a wartime mentality that I think what's happening here is that David and the people of Israel have won one battle, right? Psalm 20. Psalm 21, they're giving praise. But the end of Psalm 21, David's looking into the future. And he's saying that more enemies are a-coming. More enemies are a-coming. In other words, he has won a battle. But the war continues on. This is why John Piper says we must embrace a wartime lifestyle. We must embrace the biblical conviction that since the fall of the world into sin, futility, and corruption, a war has been going on, one of the most serious kinds between God and Satan, between God's purposes of redemption and Satan's purposes of destruction. You see? So who are the enemies? One, we know that they hate the Lord and they plan evil against God. So these aren't necessarily your personal enemies who rub you the wrong way, who rear end you because they're on their phones, right? That's kind of not the enemies that God has in mind here. These enemies hate him and they plan evil against him. They take their anger out on God's people and God's worship and God's temple and God's land and God's laws and God's fame and God's name. They trust in themselves and their chariots and their power and their might and their horses. They'd storm the gates of heaven if they could. Second, it's also their descendants, those being raised in active rebellion against God. And look at what God, look at what David actually prays that God will do. Man, look at what he says. In verse 10, you will put them to flight. Verse 12, I'm sorry. And you will aim at their faces with your bows. That don't kind of get under your skin. Did David just say that God Almighty is going to aim a bow? At the face, the frontal lobe of an enemy? Do you hear how, how 
That just sounds bad at first hearing. It's uncomfortable because we don't want to ponder that side of the Lord. But what enemies does David have in mind? You see, I think this language here takes us back to Genesis 3. You hear the, this language of offspring, their descendants. Look at verse 10. You would destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. You get this image of being hit in the head, the front of the head. Does that not remind you of Satan where God told the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see what's happening there? That if you were to ask David, David, what's going on with these enemies? What are you talking about? I think David would say that first, this enmity is one that God created. Second, it's between offspring and offspring. David is of the offspring of the seed of God, and their enemies are not of God. There are a people who will never, ever turn from darkness to light. They will die in unbelief. They don't just tolerate the seed of God. They want to obliterate the seed of God. And notice in Genesis that one is coming of the woman who will bruise the serpent's head. Similar language to what you see here. David isn't just fighting against people. They were fighting against the enemies to God's glory, God's agenda, God's laws, God's ways. Now, what does this have to do with us? First, the Bible tells us that we are all by nature children of wrath following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air who was now at work and the sons of disobedience. And so as you think about enemies, we have to start there that the Bible says we were all at one point his enemies. Second, God in his mercy has the elect, those that he will pluck out of the world and lavish them with his grace for his own purposes that we might praise his glorious grace. We cannot be afraid of that doctrine, y'all. We got to lean into it. You got to embrace it because it's in the Bible. And what it reminds us of, there is nothing we can do to earn salvation. God, for his sovereign purposes, according to his own mercy, he chooses to reach down while we were still enemies and pull some up and some he calls to himself to the praise of his glorious grace. And we are now born of God. The old is gone. The new has come. And there are some who will never return and never repent. But here's the thing. We don't know who they are. If a thief on a cross can be converted hours before he dies, you are never to pass judgment on any non-believer. And so we do what Jesus tells us to do for our enemies. We don't throw bows at them. We pray for them. We pray for their repentance. We pray for soft hearts. We pray for an end to their terror. We pray for their conversions. But there's more. You see, the New Testament says that we have multiple enemies. Your indwelling sin is an enemy. And my indwelling sin is an enemy. My flesh and your flesh is an enemy. 
the world is an enemy. Satan is an enemy. And this is why you hear people say the world, the flesh, the devil. That's the unholy trinity. And if you read 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that death is an enemy. And at any moment, because we are at war, any of those enemies can come for you. At any moment, our sinful flesh can act. At any moment, Satan can be on the move. At any moment, this world system and its ways can assault you. At any moment, death can come knocking on your door. And this is terrifying, isn't it? Because we are at war. This is why the Bible tells us to stay alert, to be watchful, to be prayerful, to be careful, to be connected. Hard things are coming. We don't have to go and look for it. It will find us. The war will come to the front porch of our hearts and our souls. I get sad when I hear that one of you gets cancer. That's death, the enemy knocking. And when I watch the news and I see a woman shot in the neck at a gas station while she's getting gas, I get sad. That's death coming. I get sad thinking about my own flesh. I get sad about being blindsided about by temptation. I get sad thinking about Judas, who after being with Jesus for three years and Peter is moved to deny and Judas to betray. These are enemies. This is why David is saying we've won this thing. But Lord, as I look out in my life, we're not safe. We're not home. At any moment, these four enemies can do us in. That's why the enemies keep coming up in the Psalms. And here's what I love about David. Look at verse 7. It's as if he's saying, I know they're out there, and I know they're coming. I know they're going to be knocking. I know I don't know what the end will be. I know I don't know how my life will turn out. I know I don't know what's coming my way, but here is what I know. I trust you and your steadfast love will make me immovable. Do you see? He's trusting. He says, I trust you and whatever comes out there, whatever they may do, I will be safe because of you, because of your love. It's like love with, with, with super glue on it. You've attached yourself to me never, ever, ever, ever to push me away. And so how do we grow in trust? It is verses one through six. What have you done in the past? You're faithful. But it's also your steadfast love. It's immovable. Look at, look at what it says. The king trusts in the Lord and through his steadfast love, he shall not be moved. Those two things are working together. You have been faithful and you love me because you love me. And you're never leaving me, never forsaking me. And because those two things are true, come what they may. Do what they want. We will persevere to the end. 
you might be wondering, how can we trust God like that when the enemies will keep a coming? How can we say, I trust you? We can look in the past and we can also look and see his covenant love, can't we? This is the way that Paul frames Romans 8. It's my favorite chapter in all the Bible. Listen to the language. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son in the past, but gave him up for us, how will he not also in the future graciously give you all things? Who shall separate you? Here's the love piece. You get the past and you get the love. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? They're the enemies, and the enemies are coming. Tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and the sword. He says, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. Not powers, not heights, nor depths, not anything in all of creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ. That's his covenantal love, and that's his past humongous thing he's done for you by atoning for your sins. He has super glued himself to you forever. And so when you wake up and the enemies come, you and I can stand, not because we're faithful, but because he is faithful. Name a thing, name an enemy that Jesus has not conquered. The world, oh yeah, I overcame that. Satan, I saw him fall from the heavens like lightning. I gave him a headshot at the cross. Your sin, I pardoned it. I'm giving you my spirit. He will indwell you. Death, it's 1 Corinthians 15. That's the last enemy. It's, it's one more to go. It's one more to go. When your Savior returns, he will destroy death. And death will never knock or ride again. Until then, you're still safe. I don't care what the cancer report says. I don't care if you die in a car accident. I don't care if you have a stroke. I don't care if you, you, you are slaughtered getting gas at a gas station. You have to know, Christian, that nobody takes your life, that the Father brings you home. Therefore, we can grow in gratitude by looking at his past track record. We can grow in trust, past, past record, and his steadfast love to you manifested in Christ Jesus. May we be a trusting and ever thankful people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need your word. Anchor us in your truth. Help us, Lord, to be thankful and trusting people, unafraid of what comes. Meet us in our weakness and shower us with your amazing grace and love. Conform us to the image of Jesus. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.